Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing this Wednesday evening? Oh, David, well, you know, it feels like a Wednesday. It's sort of been one of those days I've been thinking, am I a tadpole or pollywog sort of guy? You know, flapjacks or pancakes. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But there was a good finish. I saw... I, there are a lot of hummingbirds around where I, I live, a lot of hummingbirds. But I saw one today that really just blew me away because I there was a shade of blue that I am certain in my DNA that I have never quite seen before. Almost, but not quite. There are uh, a lot of really beautiful shades of green and purple here uh very common in in the hummingbirds but never this shade of blue and it just and i had a really strange moment watching it because it just it startled me and i was trying to sort of think you know what would it be in a, like an islamic art context would it be old new orleans uh it was really hard to pin down and I was thinking maybe some sort of wandering merchant in a, you know, the Fertile Crescent, you know, selling something beautiful but mysterious on the banks of the Euphrates River. It was a, it was a mysterious blue. But my thought was I had this little twinge. And I thought that bird may never really know that about itself. Not, not the way that, that I'm thinking about it. And I, I just thought, I wonder if we could have that perspective about ourselves in some way and just deal with it, you know, just really, really come to terms with the idea that, yeah, Socrates said, know thyself, but it's never going to happen. It's mm -hmm. never really going to happen. And to, to kind of not just accept that, but to really groove on it, you know. So that was kind of the end of my afternoon. It was just, and I, I'm pleased to say that I will never even attempt to try to mix that color because I know I would either get crass and murky in the purple register or I'd get pastel, pastel blue in the, in a range that would be more appropriate to a Japanese plastic toy, you know? And so it was a kind of a sacred color. When I was in Taos, are you familiar with bottle trees? Yeah. I saw so many bottle trees in Taos and the blue of the bottles was that same kind of unique feeling. Funny enough, when I came back to Edmond and I was in my neighborhood, I noticed that one of my neighbors had a bottle tree in their yard. I had never noticed that before. But on the subject of blues and birds, there were a ton of pied crows in Taos as well. Hmm. There were just pied crows everywhere. And I'd never seen this bird that. before. And there are pie crow statues all over the place. And all weekend, I was just looking at these fascinating birds. Rios pointed them out at first. She said, what is that? She said, that looks like a crow but it's got a white face. And I said, no, hold on. And I saw it and I was like, oh my God, we're becoming amateur ornithologists. Excellent. And, Excellent. And 
so the blue bottle trees and the pie crows were similarly unique experiences that I had never had before. But I like that idea. I like the idea that that we are all these sort of different shades of colors that people can't quite mix together. It really steals you against this feeling of being misinterpreted or misunderstood because you begin to think, well, duh, that's natural. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it it just might be inherently impossible. It's kind of, you know, like we want to be somehow visible from every possible perspective and yet remain unique and, you know, kind of elusive. And, well, you can't have it both ways, but something essential about us is maybe just completely unknowable and yet very, very tangible nonetheless. Absolutely. Well, as we do when we start off the show, do you have a band and an aphorism for us? Yep, I do. Get ready for the obscene toys. And their album debut is called Peep Show Creep Show and has tracks on it titled Possible Perversities and Robot Drag Queen. Their gig is a South Park-toned parody thrash burlesque troupe. But there are two unifying factors in their ensemble backgrounds. They were all child musical entertainers. Not prodigies, but minor stars so they're all show business kids they're also all now deprogrammed ex-scientologists <laughs> so i think that's, that's thematically kind of good that. yeah, yeah. And yeah. they've got a lot of little subtext sort of going on that's amazing that's good and for our aphorism Okay, I was thinking that because we're we've been talking about time, I just wanted to throw in one of mine is that I'm I think is really beautifully simple, but it it's uh, it's been published and it's been circulated, and I just wanted to call attention to it again. The past is the only thing you can repeat, which mm. I think is a remarkably simple but poignant observation. Which I think I don't know I haven't really come across that I. Um, I remember when that occurred to me, I was reading, reading uh, The Great Gatsby again. I was teaching it, you know, and Gatsby um, says, was talking to Nick and, and Nick says, you know, you can't repeat the past and trying to sort of resurrect and reconfigure the relationship with Daisy. And Gatsby says, of course you can. And so the past is the only thing you can repeat. And I think we often forget that. But here's the new one. To truly keep living, you have to start. And again, I think we, uh, you know, how often do hospice care workers and people dealing at end of life, you know, interactions with people say that the greatest regret, you know, is always, well, you know, it's just getting started. You know, I I didn't. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and that is such a common and predictable uh, response that maybe we should really start thinking about that when we still have 36 Christmases left, not just, you know, but to truly keep living, you have to start. And of course, I mean a lot more than just, you know, to start living by intent, you know, by real, you know, focus and direction rather than, oh, just I'm here, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. I do now. Yeah, yeah, no, with with intent. I'm currently in the in the keep living stage of life. I feel like I really started a couple years ago, not coincidentally. And it's you know, I wonder about, you know, the the keeping on living part is really difficult at times. And I don't mean in a nihilistic suicidal way i just mean it gets pretty damn hard over time and i wonder if that doesn't play into people's reticence to start in the first place because somehow subconsciously they know that that's true like once they start they have to keep and that's when oh i I think that's absolutely right i think that's a very good pragmatic insight to uh you know, how human nature works. And it's, you can see it in terms of New Year's resolutions and diets and all sorts of, of the little games that we play in our heads. But here's something I found, which um, I think directly speaks to that. Every once in a while, I think we should all come back to Wordsworth. Um, you know, he and Coleridge really did break it wide open with uh, a kind of a hip hop movement of their time with lyrical ballads. But this is a beautiful uh, piece from the prelude, Grasmere. So feeling comes in aid of feeling, and diversity of strength attends us if we but once have been strong. You know, I think just one, you know. Yes, absolutely. This is where it starts, is, is one we've got to give ourselves something more to be proud of about ourselves. You know, all this body positivity, sort of all this movement today is about how we can feel better about ourselves by lower standards, shying away from competition and, and sequestering ourselves within social media. That's kind of a, a nice bubble wrapped echo chamber for us. Why don't we think of it? No, let's give our, let's make, us more proud of ourselves somehow. I had a difficult day today. I had um, something approaching a nervous breakdown and it's really simple. It's normal life things. It's a bunch of work and money woes combined with being the the lone parent of an almost two-year-old. And yeah. this feeling of not being able to get things done. And so Gus and I played a lot of basketball and we built things with Legos. And the entire time we're doing that, and he's he's started to say, he started to say no. He started to say, no, 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 no. And I have to say, what are you what no what? What are you saying no to? And then he'll say, no, 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 no. 
And of course, in my head, internally, I'm I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. Not at him, but you're screaming, you know? It's that that silent desperation. And I went to pick up Rios today, and she got into the car, and she saw my reflection in the rearview mirror because she sits in the back seat with guts. And she said, she just takes one look into my eyes and she says, Oh my God, are you okay? So I must've looked like, I must've looked like shit. And all I said to her was, uh, today, I I, I just told her, I just said, uh, today I got stronger. That's it. That's That's it. it. Yep. That's it, and and uh, no one says that that's an easy or pleasant experience. Uh, but oh no, 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 no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's great. Well, those are the the Wordsworth quote in particular. I I really enjoyed. Um, I was I I didn't quite get in my notes down what that was from. Can you repeat that for me, please? That's from uh, his long poem, The Prelude. Uh, It's from the Grasmere section. Grasmere's in the lake uh, country. So it's part of a, you know, his meandering sort of, I mean, we've lost touch with what a radical uh, poetic stance that he and Coleridge managed to achieve in the lyrical ballads but they simply blew the doors off everything with maybe the exception of, of William Blake's uh, poems. I mean, they're, they're in that sort of visionary, just blowout sort of category, but Wordsworth, you know, gives this very sort of measured legato meditative, almost essay like, and of course that was an era of great essayists Um, Hazlitt and Lamb. I mean, just some beautiful, there's just, England was very rich, uh, once again, in in literary talent. But Wordsworth gets that beautiful pinging back and forth. I once gave a lecture on him about echolocation because he's always going from the very personal voice, Mm -hmm. his own first person narrative voice without an attempt to include us. He's He's including us by virtue of being William Wordsworth. Uh, but out to the cosmos, that's how he gets us. He gets us in this oscillation. And it really is, there are very few uh, writers who do that so deceptively simply, you know, that constant oscillation between the extremely private uh, and not always quiet and contemplative, uh, but the extremely intimate psychological, personal and the cosmological. You know, and he just yeah. gets that energy going. And before you know it, you you feel like you're walking in step with him, you know, and he's fooled you into into thinking, oh, I'm not really covering enormous physical and metaphysical cultural terrain. I'm just, you know, going for a walk with someone interesting, you know, and that's I think, Alan, art. Alan Watts does that. Terrence McKenna yes, does he that. does. Yes, uh, he does. Uh, also. Milan Kundera does many really many of the novelists that I really have a lot of time for seem to oscillate between those two things too, but I've never thought of it that way. I like that you put it uh, put it in that sense because I think that narrative tension doesn't have anything to do with plot tension. It's the tension of the voice. and yeah. I think that tension and oscillation 
in equal measure. Well, attention that comes from it, right? Moving back and forth creates a kind of tightening at the center, almost like two strings pulling on a sphere or something. That's how I'm seeing it in my head anyway. But I, I think that your writing does that too, though. You're writing, and you might have gotten that from Wordsworth, because in some of your best essays and in your fiction, you move from incredibly intimate details down to sweat and farts and and what have you out. I'm thinking of the opening to Reverend America, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. You have you have this archetypal figure, but then he's at a bus stop, and it's the I think you call them wet milk farts or something like that. And it brings you down to the, to the, uh, I've read your books many times, sir. Uh, <laughs> so it brings it all the way out and then all the way in. Right. Is that a, is that a Wordsworth influence then? You know, I, I, I wouldn't have said that was consciously so, but absolutely. And I think that's maybe what made me kind of gravitate back to it that uh, I, I was reading those, well, particularly Wordsworth, Coleridge and Keats at a really great time in my life. Uh, and a lot of things were blowing up and really taking shape. And I felt that sort of connection. And um, I had a couple of good friends that uh, we would all go walking and we were kind of swapping girlfriends back and forth. And that was a good time for uh well, hallucinogens, that was a, it was one of many phases, but that was a particularly interesting phase. And there was a lot of, I was out in New England because uh, I was in college and I, I, you know, I'm from the Bay Area and I'd come from Hollywood, like a really shitty hotel in, you know, kind of dangerous part of, of Hollywood and then a really funky place in Pasadena. So to be out in the woods, you know, so there was a kind of a natural beat of the conversations moving about personal topics because we were deeply involved in each other's lives and one went crazy and uh and flipped out and there was interesting stuff going on but then also that kind of sense of participating in not just the immediate environment but a sense of the cosmos that was kind of to our scale you know that's that's what it, it felt like in that moment of being kind of on the beat in terms of how long our shadows were, how we meshed with the world around us, not feeling, uh, well, when we were together, we weren't feeling overwhelmed, you know, which you can at that age, as you know. This is what a natural storyteller you are, because you did it right there. You actually oscillated in your anecdote about your friends. You went from, uh, you know, we're going on these walks, hallucinogens, dating each other's girlfriends and then you go you move forward in time and mention that one of them goes crazy and then come back to talk about the shadows that's natural storytelling right dropping that there yeah is a lot of people wouldn't think to to do that that might be a tag at the end of the story right an afterthought but you put it in the middle <laughs> oh, you're a very insightful listener because you're a natural storyteller too so i think that's that's where that harmonic you know connects mm. and resonates mm. that's really cool to hear that back because i think that does you know i think what's going on with both of us is something very very deep at the yeah. at the central 
you know, hub of those deep grammars that we've been talking about, that, you know, there's these very, very private algorithms upon which layers of identity are based. They come up from these rhythms mm-hmm. of story and, and music and idea and dream, you know? Absolutely. All right. I'm ready for my imaginative challenge. Okay. Okay. Well, this is, uh, this is complex because this is a storytelling uh, assignment, but you're going to do it from the point of view, the perspective of another writer. Okay. Mm. So it's kind mm. of a meta story. Uh, mm. It's called showrunner. And you are playing the cocaine addicted, super bright woman involved in this show. And simultaneously, your first full on lesbian relationship in your personal life. Mm -hmm. And the show that you are working on and have staked your reputation on is called Noctane mix of nocturnal and octane and it is premised on the the question of demon or psychopath okay Mm -hmm. the star character which is based on the uh showrunner it's her projection of herself so we're getting meta 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 (laughs) is involved with in the show, it's a male, even though she's mm. involved in her private life in a lesbian relationship. But the question in her mind is, is this new lover of hers some sort of supernatural emissary of evil, a demon, if you will? Or would he be better described as some sort of psychopath in a kind of uh, Ted Bundy mode? charming very capable and worrisome threatening so your character the cocaine addicted super bright woman involved in her first lesbian relationship is trying to orchestrate this show and the condition of the studio execs their one demand is that that it every episode must perform but not fully resolve the ambiguity between the supernatural or the psychological interpretation. So you're going to give us the crucial moment that resolves the pilot episode and hopefully gets us excited about watching the further episodes because it's going to be left on kind of a cliffhanger sort of level. But it has to resonate in some way with your character's real life. She gets some inspiration from her real life that she goes, yes, that's it. Mm. That's it. That's what that's the ticker. That's going to be what winds up this pilot script and makes my fortune. Okay, complicated meta, 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 but meta, meta, meta. Yep. A bit of fun. But I'm open to questions because it is a little complicated. There's some moving parts there. Oh no! Oh no! 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 I, I don't. I don't have any questions. I was making okay. one, one I quick note that, before we started. 
I got the my gears demon or psychopath thing is right on our wavelength. And, yeah. you know, you, we've talked about this, you've written, you know, it's, this is, I, I, you're there on that, on that level. So it's just sort of how you insinuate around to get to that level and bring it back. Absolutely. Okay. I've got my note down here, my initial note, and I'm ready to rock and roll. So okay. last time we talked about time. And yeah. we we used uh, Lapham's Quarterly to investigate several different questions about time, including some great quotes from Kepler. Uh, we talked a lot about um, the invention of the clock as a shifting point in human history. We talked about 1365 when it was decided that there would be 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour and 24 hours in a day. And... We got to a point there uh, towards the end. Before, before I say that, uh, there are lots of different times that we can talk about, specifically in a lake-off sense of borrowed time, stolen time. Uh, I'm interested to see where you want to go this time. I'm trying to figure out a different freaking word to use than time, but... Well, this is part of... This is a very interesting part of it, and I think this gets to... Uh, one of the deep structure, deep grammar problems that we face with this. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I, I have um, a, well two quotations in particular because they're coming from very, very different points of view that I want to uh, throw to you for a response. But before I get to those, I, yeah, I have been thinking about trying to put some frames on time because we we do talk about it in so many different ways and i was sitting back uh thinking about well what what comes to mind that would have to be mentioned at some point as a backdrop let's say and i thought well one one thing is the fossil record you mm -hmm. know in terms of organic time and geologic time and are, are earthly cosmological as opposed to divine, mythic, metaphysical sense of time. And I am excited that where I live in Nevada, there's more of the uh, former uh, nuclear test site opening up. So there are more fossils being found. Um, we know there have been some major breakthroughs over the last year in terms of uh, discoveries that have kind of upset or revised our thinking about the age of, of the human species, uh, the descent or ascent of uh, humanity uh, in a Darwinian way. So that's really changing shape in a lot of interesting ways. And then I was thinking about, we've talked about historical revisionism and, you know, it just struck me so clearly that when you go to research, you know, any historic era, you're really talking about empires. You know, I mean, think about the whole approach to Chinese history is, is certainly in terms of that. Uh, but the Ottoman, it goes on and on and on. And yet we seem to have a, an issue with the notion of empire. Uh, we're resisting that idea. And we're also conscious that maybe the America, the age of American empire is, is truly over. So I was thinking about that. Uh, 
And then I was thinking stupidly about some of the rhythms, the structural routine rhythms in our own lives. And also that determined uh, our attention. It's very interesting, the word, the, the, pre, the suffix span or the connected word span appears relative to two words, attention and life. Mm. Think about that, attention span, lifespan. We don't have, that's how it appears. And there's, a, I think, a relationship between attention and life. But I found myself really just beat out one night and I just stupidly started watching. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime, uh, a show, it's a series of movies based on a, a character called Jesse Stone. Robert Parker was the novelist who created yeah. this. You know, I, I had never heard of it before, but I liked Tom Selleck from old Magnum P.I. days. Anyway, I started watching and I thought, wait a minute, something. This is just a trope after trope within, you know, that the show lets you know is going to keep popping up and you can like set a metronome to it. And I thought, this is so weird. And it reminded me of like when I was watching, uh, some some Hallmark Channel shows with my mom with Ellen, and how things happen. Well, lo and behold, I found it. The Hallmark Channel's behind the Jesse's. I didn't know that when I started. Mm -hmm. I really didn't. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it was it, these just in sort of ridiculous sort of rhythms. So those are sort of three kind of general backdrops I wanted to get into our the mix overall the fossil record, the historical notion of eras and epics being defined in terms of empires and then very very personal rhythms of which which turn out to be not that private they they're more socially sort of uh constructed but the rhythms of certain shows the rhythms of expectations but anyway okay here is the first quotation and this is from a lost explorer's hero uh john wheeler the uh the physicist who has one amongst many of his great lines. If you haven't seen something strange today, it wasn't a very good day. Was it just a wonderful, wonderful character, but here is sort of the point of view of, of time from a genius physicist eccentric point of view. Time is nature's way to keep everything from happening all at once. Okay, so I want you to have that in mind. And then we're going to jump to the uh, poetic artistic realm of Novalis, who mm -hmm. died at just 29. I think a great genius. I, For years, I would read one of his aphorisms every day. I, I think just an amazing and a great bridge between the sciences and and the arts. He was uh, uh, an engineer at a salt mine, no less, in addition to being an amazing writer. But here's the, the complimentary quote. In time, history must become a fairy tale. It will become again what it was in the beginning. And I think that's not the same thing as the, the myth of the eternal return, either from an Eliade point of view or a Nietzsche point of view. I, th I think there's something else. But do you want me to give you those two again? No, I've got them. So I've got John Wheeler saying that time is nature's way 
of keeping everything from happening all at once. And I've Perfect. got Novellus saying, um, uh, in time, uh, history must become a fairy tale. And then uh, everything must become as it was in the beginning. Is that yes. Cl- okay uh yeah that's pretty much we, we'll just we'll just get that exact. yeah let me i'm not i'm i'm shaky on that last line perfect on wheeler so the, the novellus quote is in time history must become a fairy tale it yep. will become again what it, it was in again. the beginning it will become again okay i need to get better at uh at my shorthand um Okay, got it. I've got I've got those down now. Um, and that, interestingly, the Novalis quote, uh, I feel like includes your thought of empires and epics and also of narrative because it explicitly mentions the fairy tale, right? right. So that uh, also your comment about span I'm going to try to introduce some new span words, hate span and love span. That would, I think, I think those are desperately needed. Very good. I like that. What's the, when somebody gets canceled, what's the hate span on this? Yeah. Think? Like, Look, I think that's beautiful. I think there's, there's a lot of, of, of real meat in that. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking about, about using that. So, um, the John Wheeler quote is interesting. You know, there is that movie that just came out, Everything Everywhere All at Once. It was nominated for a few Academy Awards. It's got uh, I've Michelle read about Yeoh. that, but I don't know what the what the premise is. I, I'm I'm intrigued by it. Yeah, I'm shaky on the premise as well because I haven't seen the film. But apparently Michelle Yeoh plays, I believe, an accountant. And through some magical happenstance, she's able to hop into different dimensions and see what her life would look like in all these different. In one, she's a you know kung fu star as she has been since the 1980s. Uh, in another one, she's dead or something. I don't know. But uh, the idea of time keeping uh, keeping things from happening all at once, combined with the Novalis quote about time needing our history needing to become a sort of fairy tale both speak to time as an arranging narrative principle more than anything none of this seems to posit time as being a real thing that you can measure or put into a cup it seems to me to be something that is uh much like our brains themselves a kind of moderation antenna for things that happen around us. And many uh, physicists and quantum physicists have said this for almost a hundred years at this point, that, you know, that time is in fact that way, that if we didn't have this kind of perceptive organ in the form of the brain, we would see time differently. When you talk to UFO people, they talk about aliens being fourth dimensional Right, yeah. because the, the fourth dimension being time, which is different because a fourth dimension being time to me seems to give it a bit more substance than what we're talking about. But if a being was fourth dimensional, they would see a human being as a kind of long snake-like being because you would see them as they go through their day in this kind of crazy circuitous knot going moving around their house, going to the store, or what have you. But 
what's interesting, I particularly like this Wheeler quote because he says that it's nature's way. Interesting. I think that's the key to it too. I, that's a very nature's way. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. do you think that means? Well, it's it's odd coming from a physicist's point of view. Um, yeah. And someone as bright and articulate uh, as he was, I mean, that's not just by chance that that's there. I think you could either say that is a profound assertion of, of worldview that is either you could either look at his body of, of thought as, as trying to uh, really flesh that out, or the assertion is predicated on nature being so fundamental that it really, it, it can't be dealt with in, until you get to the levels of time and space, which is mm -hmm. when the physics kicks in. And I think both of those are sort of true. He's kind of considered... Uh, in the history of science as a Mysterian, uh, in other words, a, a very much a counter to, uh, well, someone like in biology, Richard Dawkins, he's not a, a positivist, determinist, mechanist. Uh, he's got room for a lot of strange things and he's looking for strange things every day as the other quote of his said, but I'm not sure what, I take that to be, uh, a kind of mystical approach to the nature of objective reality that seems to scare and alienate so many. Uh, well, a lot of people today, a lot of uh, uh, people on the left, that any sort of suggestion of an objective um, framework however little we know about it finally but the 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 use of the word nature is a bit friendly organic you know and uh well it's certainly not mechanical or abstract you know mm, mm, it's mm. warm it, it could be female it could be it's generative it's uh it it's an interest it's a generative start rather than some sort of big bang you mm. know thermo mm you know, chaotic nothing that suddenly turns into something. There's a little bit more, uh, well, Wordsworthian connection, you know, with, with right. things. And I think nature, well, nature and time are probably, you know, two of the words that, you know, two of the 20 most misunderstood words or confusing words that we have. Mm -hmm. to, for something to be in something's nature means the way that it is. Yeah, And when you think of Chinese Tao, meaning way, uh, you know, being in the way, it's another famous Alan Watts lecture. Um, it's, it is interesting because when you think about nature as being a way, it does divest it of a kind of subjective godlike quality. Because my next question was, does mean god when he says nature do people mean god or is it just sort of a a third thing that is neither god nor not god but just a way a nature 
Well, that's a really interesting point. I, I'm I'm pleased that, that uh, you keep um, getting Alan Watts into our conversations because I have an enormous amount of time for Alan Watts. Um, I think some of his uh, just meditations walking on Mount Tamalpais, he had a shack up on the mount um, and a, a houseboat in Sausalito Harbor uh, were very Wordsworthian. And he's bridging that God in a Christian sense, because he came from a very strong and knowledgeable uh, Christian Western background uh, before he started really um, embracing Eastern philosophy and religious practice. And he was really had his had his spirit in both worlds and was very fluent, in my view, at kind of bringing those together. There was some resentment in his lifetime about cultural appropriation of creating a kind of, uh, you know, a Western market for uh, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, more so than Hinduism. But, but you know, part of that 60s revolution of, of interest in the, the thinking and spirituality of the East. And I hardly think that's a, a, a crime. I think, you know, I think he was a very knowledgeable commentator and did a lot with that. But I think that is the question that there there is really some uh, jumping from lily pad to lily pad about whether or not God equals uh, nature. I, and I think for you know someone like Spinoza, uh, that is what happens, and nature becomes that that way of dealing with it. I think for someone like Darwin, that's really the crux of his whole. I mean, he was terribly curious about the world, no question, and very courageous, certainly in his younger days. But his his driving interest as a natural historian and someone out there, you know, literally just looking at pond scum and, and collecting things was about the question of how to get God out of the game and how to get nature as the focal point. But he wasn't at all comfortable with the sexualized idea of nature that many other writers and thinkers have been. And I don't think he was really wanting to deal with any kind of uh, spiritual identity, not, not later in life, maybe at the time of the voyage of the Beagle in his 30s, but not as he aged and he got physically ill. You know, he wanted to be... Uh, well, he was just very grumpy and I think probably, you know, suffering a mood disorder from chronic pain and immobility mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, that's reflected in his, his writing. So the, the question of God in nature, the nature of God, that is the tension that is just all over the joint and certainly in terms of Western traditions. And it, it really... Um, well, I think, you know, thinking of Darwin, I think you could look at Wallace as the the kind of the cool hippie, mm -hmm. the more mm -hmm. relaxed, obviously spiritual. Uh, I mean, they both have the, you know, the photograph left, they have these, you know, immense white beards, and they look like very much of their time. But you could tell who's the happier. And uh, Wallace definitely sees in nature uh I think everything that we mean by God, absolutely, mm -hmm. and and sees no attempt and makes no attempt to deny God 
that that's not the driving wheel of his his version of the evolutionary theory whereas it definitely is it's the it's the motive force and the goal of darwin's and i think the physicists um are kind of all over the place on that you know einstein was uh was a deist and that's his god doesn't play dice he had some very strict rigid things uh but he was coming from so much of a mathematical point of view and i think that may be the question is um where that mathematical thing fits in if you're more mystical in your math like pythagoras and that tradition uh i mean the whole occult thing is driven by that john d you know on and on all the the magi were alchemists and mathematicians Mm -hmm. So they had a kind of idea about how God was expressing and revealing and giving clues. Mm -hmm. So nature becomes the medium by which God leaves the, the secret messages for us to uh, unravel. If we find the right mind, the right spirit, the right skills. With the Novalis quote, in time, history must become a fairy tale so that it may become as it was in the beginning. If it was a fairy tale in the beginning, is this a predeterministic idea? And the idea that the, the archetypal memory of history is set from the beginning to be played out? No, I don't think so. I think that's a perfectly fair interpretation, and I think that is a major question. So I'm not dismissing that at all. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And I, I think that 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 always with uh, Novalis, there there are at least three levels going on. So let's mm -hmm. say that's one. But the way I sort of thought of it is, um, it's a degree of specificity and detail uh, that we we move we we begin with fairy tale with great myth and and creation myth and and the sciences do too but the big bang th you know theory is that's just another creation myth as far it's as a creation myth yeah me too yeah it's uh you know it it, it doesn't have uh <laughs> well that's that's its purpose it gets the ball rolling but as as things progress and progress in time is something uh, I think we should encourage listeners to go back to some of our earlier, we did an early series on myths of progress and that's very relevant. Again, I think we covered some interesting ground there, but things move towards becoming more specific in a mm -hmm. scientific sense, in an administrative sense, in a historical sense, we begin to accumulate data and one of the ideas, you know, that the notion of history is that when suddenly there's too much narrative, too much story, too much ceremony to uh, be retained in a hardwired sense of, of flesh to flesh, that we might lose people, we might lose something, we've got to start writing stuff down, you know, we've got to start making more artifacts to record, otherwise this stuff is getting away. You know, I mean, as a writer, you know, you've maybe been out on a sort of an adventure or something and you suddenly think, God damn, I've got to, I've got to write this mm -hmm. stuff down. Yeah. Uh, or I've yeah. got, you know, um, 
I used to, when I was like 18, I, I people thought I had some sort of, uh, well, we were all doing a lot of crazy drugs and people just assumed I was, I had some, weird, I was using my hands to, to yeah. create this whole memory system of. Like, they're like, uh, oh dude, he's fried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I was, I was keeping it all. Well, I was doing, uh, I was keeping it really all together because, you know, you couldn't, I if you're hanging out with, you know, gangbangers in Inglewood, you can't just whip out your notebook and start, you know, writing yeah. stuff yeah. down. Kind of got to remember yeah. it all. You know, and if you're, and if you're a white boy, you got to have some kind of twitch. You got to be twitchy. Yeah. Because, well, see know. that worked. It worked perfectly, you yeah. know, and it was kind of an expression of an inner, you know, it's like, Oh no, I'm not worried about all those weapons and those, you know, those bags yeah. of dope. You know, it's like, no, no, that's all part of the scene. So, but uh, there was a thread there. Of oh, being a... no, I think that here, here's an example of what I think the Novalis quote may be getting to is that I think it is kind of an aerial view of we start off with big creation myth, fairy tale kinds of, of stories. And then history gets very, very specific and it gets library voluminous and huge architectural monuments and sculptures and it ripples out and it becomes too much to contain. So mm. it becomes back to cultural amnesia at the fairy tale level, or we get, we have to go back up to the satellite sort of level and we, things begin to blur. It becomes this kind of beautiful abstract image, a mosaic, and then really just a pixel and it fades, you know, because we just can't retain it all. And it made me think of their, um, at my principal uh, place in, in the bush on the land in Australia, um, it was a historic property. It was called the Chimneys. And I knew, for instance, there was uh, a quartz-crushing gold mine. That was the last mm -hmm. stage of the gold rush there on the property. And I knew that there were 20 bodies of Chinese workers that were buried somewhere there. And there were a lot of mis mysteries. And what I was going to write a real whole thing. I had, I'm sorry I didn't at the time because I was, I had some great characters. But out of all of these possibilities, and you can imagine on a full moon night, you know, looking at sort of an old gold rush graveyard and, you know, stories of bush rangers and all of this stuff, there's a lot of cool things going on. I happened to find a very pragmatic, mundane accounting record by the mine manager, 19th century. You know, he was a Brit from, uh, he was a, from Yorkshire, no less. And it was, uh, he was in charge of that quartz crushing operation and a little bit around the corner, they were still working on the Crocodile Creek mine, which was kind of a ridiculous uh, name because there are no crocodiles in Victoria. They're way mm -hmm. up north. But I looked at it and I have it with my things in Australia. I mean, everyone would, would know, you know, think, oh, no, this is just, you know, out of, you know, this is just office bookkeeping and stuff. But when I saw it and I had in my it was on a, a full moon night and I was looking out at the, the, the chimneys that, that give the property its name, this little shed where the, the bread was baked for the workmen. 
and thinking about the ghosts of the Chinese who are dead somewhere, you know, on the land still, and dingoes are howling and stuff. And I looked at that sheet of figures, and to me, that was an emblem of the entire British Empire and all that a lot of people are talking about today in terms of system and administration and organization. And I could see the man filling that out and I could see what kind of man he was. And I could really take myself back in time to that moment. And here he was really for him out very much in the bush, removed from Melbourne by about a hundred miles, which would have been a lot then. Mm -hmm. It was remote from from hanging rock. Mm -hmm. uh, it was twice again as far north. And in that simple document, to me, that was a very important historical artifact that was an emblem and a sigil of an enormous ripple of thought and organization and deep grammars that are with us right now. You know, mm -hmm. so I think that with the Navalis quote, he's thinking about this this tension, this oscillation between the fairy tale, the magic, the kinds of things I was thinking of the Chinese miners, that level, and the moon and bigger cosmological themes. Then history becomes very much a record, you know, of well, who bought what? How many beans did you buy? You're, mm. you're collecting receipts. I mean, all of those are valid forms of history, too, you know, and we know our algorithms get reflected in Amazon. We look at those things. We think, yeah, that's part of us. So we can't dismiss that forensic level of history, um, but it will fade away because people won't know how to interpret it. Or a lot of people would look at this miners ledger and go, nah, you know, who, you know, so what? That's not very exciting, you know, Uh <laughs> And it isn't, except if you know how to look at it, you know, and then you think about what it really meant to have that mindset in that place in the 1860s, what was going on in the world at that time, you know, and so does that, does that help shed some light in that or, and it does, it does. And it, it reminds me of, you know, the horizontality of time and the verticality of the, the ledger. And it specifically acts as a bridge between the two quotes for me, because the returning to story, or in this quote, fairy tale, uh, I think of that in terms of the ledger. That is the re-simplification, the re-mythologizing of what's going on in a key, in a specific key, a ledger, a legend, right? Mm -hmm. the two the two the two meanings of that word and <clears throat> it also creates a kind of tension with the first quote because it you know time being nature's way of keeping everything from happening all at once it seems to me that when these moments are all the expansive uh extrapolations that you get from that you know all the all the different the, the the fact of it being a kind of metonymy or a metaphor for the empire in general all crushed down into one it kind of 
does make everything happen all at once right there. That's right? an interesting point. I, I think that's a really good uh, insight into the mysterious uh, magic of, of time artifacts that, that, mm-hmm. that connect time to history yeah. because they do in a sense kind of exist in all time in a weird way. They're mm-hmm. both before and after themselves, which is kind of, you know, that's getting into time paradoxes right there, but it, it does seem to I wonder what the mine company manager would have thought, because a large part of what he's doing is is working with time and money and resources. So he's trying to manage those. And the idea of a manager, that title would, would have been still, I think, relatively new. I mean, we just sort of take that entirely for granted. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I wonder what he would have thought. He would have thought that he was, he wouldn't have thought about it on this more like paradoxical ephemeral level. He would have thought much more along the lines of the Wheeler quote that he was, would have been taking many things that were happening all at once and arranging them so that they, they can't be happening all at once, you know, because once you put something into a list, no matter when they happen specifically in time, they're no longer happening at the same time when they're yeah, revisited. Yeah, right, right, right. So that might have been his initial, but over time, to bring Novalis back into it, over time, this the cyclical nature of things, you go from you know the the mythological story down to the brass tacks Chinese workers, you know, getting gold out of this mine in the middle of nowhere in Australia, and it gets abandoned lost this ledger does and then it gets discovered by you and it's right back to being a story again to to be yeah. myth again it's cool man i think i think that it's trippy but it's cool well it's certainly that sense of story where where the notion i think of of, of time any way to sort of visualize it or conceptualize it, it is the most uh, dimensional because it's very confusing otherwise. I mean, you look mm-hmm. around that area, for instance, but any area, and you can see ruins and you see physical remains, suggestions mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. things, some well documented, and you know, there have been photographed. I mean, there's some amazing beehive ovens and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. It's really not from that long ago. So it's not, but it's in the midst of land that is very, very ancient. And every time you, you find or visit or get a glimpse or, you know, see an old photograph or have any suggestion of that world, you realize how incomplete your understanding is if you're a thoughtful person, you know, so it becomes more mysterious and you think, well, wait a minute, where, where did it all go? And it's only kind of when you have that narrative frame of story uh, that it does have any sense at all to it that you can, and you can't necessarily, you know, really get your hands on it, but at least you can get your conceptual mental hands on it.
Yeah. <laughs> My head is in knots right now. I, um, Hmm. I'm just going to let that hang there. As a matter of fact, I make a note really quick. Well, let me then add, because we're, we're big on the rule of threes. Let me just open things up in a sort of simple way to touch back on our sense of span in attention and lifespan. Um, because I, I, I wonder if we're saying that, that we are at a period when some new paradigm is forming, a giant cultural uh, framework, that our sense of time may, uh, may be shifting. Mm -hmm. I've got a, a third sort of quotation, and then something really, uh, really down to, to very fundamental earth. But this is from Marshall McLuhan who we've talked about before. I think many listeners would be familiar with his thought. I find him interesting because, uh, particularly from understanding media, his, his, his most famous work, although we've talked about the Gutenberg galaxy, which I think is just, uh, is really an astonishing uh, insight into the nature of printing and its effect on oral traditions around the world. But, you know, he was a great sloganeer. He gave us the idea of the global village, the medium, uh, the, the message and the medium, you know, that kind of oscillation. And uh, I'd forgotten that he died at only 69. Um, mm -hmm. But here are, um, this is from one uh, extended piece of understanding media called The Here and Now. This is from 1953. And I, I think uh, we've spoken about how he remains sort of cutting edge and also seems uh, strangely dated with the rise of the internet. It's kind of, he's worth touching base with because he's both in and out of fashion, I think, ahead and behind his time. But he says, when a city or a society achieves a diversity and equilibrium of awareness analogous to the body-mind network, it has what we tend to regard as a high culture, but the instant instantaneous nature of communication makes free speech and thought difficult, if not impossible, and for many reasons. Radio extends the range of the casual speaking voice, but it forbids that many should speak, and when it is said has such range of control, it is forbidden to speak any but the most acceptable words and notions. Power and control are in all cases paid for by loss of freedom and flexibility. And I think we can see that there's a lot of reference to social media platforms there, even if those uh, are not on his horizon. Yeah. But yeah. Here's, here's the close of this for your review. The modern world abridges all historical times as readily as it reduces space. You were talking about crossing time yep. zones last yep. time. Everywhere and every age have become here and now. History 
has been abolished by our new media. I think that brings us all the way full circle. It kind of connects Novalis and Wheel, and it brings us back around on a very interesting wheel to some of the comments you were making in last, last week's episode. That is, so I'll take the first, the first chunk of that. He's saying that when, when, when any kind of society uh, reaches a kind of consensus, comparing it to the body and the mind, you could almost use uh, the term hive mind, that that develops a kind of high culture. And then he's saying that, however, when you get a technology that comes along that allows the voice to be transmitted to places that it wouldn't normally be able to be transmitted to throughout the entirety of human history, that in a sense, uh, it disrupts the the holistic body of the culture. Uh, it, it's too many inputs well on, the, on the body. So it ends up disrupting the brain because those two are intrinsically connected. I like that the, <laughs> I've been saying for the past few months that, you know, maybe people should just take a break from social media and Twitter because maybe everybody shouldn't have a voice. Uh, you're really beginning to see the fact that, you know, there's this level of control that governments and other people are all trying to figure out uh, in terms of what's appropriate to say and what's inappropriate to say. And as you know, with me, I've run up against what you're not supposed to say more times than I care to count. And the final point about as, as, time well as space collapses time similarly gets abridged that process has accelerated by 2023 to the point where no understanding whatsoever of history seems to be important whatsoever down to a very simple binary of was it racist or not Were were they racist well then i don't care uh, which, by the way, line of thinking has nothing to do with actual racism. It's completely a matter of of pe- of powerless people flexing this new McLuhanite control over this new medium of transmission of voices. Right? That's all it has to do with. It doesn't have to do with actual racism, but. The move that he makes from this idea of society as a as a body that's taking things in the same way that we don't just take in voices or sights, but we take things in happily, you know, like our body can feel different temperatures and that affects our moods where, uh, you know, if we touch lead paint, that's obviously not good for it to leach into the skin that can affect the mind in a certain way. For him to move from that to this new medium of control that seems to almost like work in reverse, right? Where it's affecting the brain and then the body takes the brunt of it. Uh, Societally, uh, that has manifested itself very interestingly in, in our physical realm. If you just look at 
your average person of Walmart, that's sort of what's happened, right? It's a two-way street in that sense. But the collapsing, the collapsing of time and it's, you know, the implication that he's making obviously is that high culture necessarily collapses when time is collapsed like this because of the abridgment of history. And I think that's pretty that's pretty dead on. I've seen countless articles about why don't we have culture in America? Why don't Americans have any culture? Well, because Americans don't believe in anything because we've shrunk everything down to the size of a pinhole <laughs> so that yeah. it can be put into easily categorizable compartments. Compartmentalizing is the word that I'm looking for. Do you think that this phenomenon of or what's happened to time and history that McClune is speaking about connects back to our notion of the crisis of embodiment or disembodiment that the, the media, uh, well, I'll, I'll throw in another. I, I wonder if the title of his, of his book, the one which we really sort of remember him most for understanding media might also be retitled understanding time mm-hmm. that that media and i mean he, he i wonder if that's where we've moved to that our our notion of time and this ties in with your idea of, of variations on span you know mm-hmm. uh twitter span well how long is that you know that the that media now defines or that that is part of the new paradigm that's forming about time it may not be how we it may have some real problems for people like you and me because we're going, wait a minute, that's so disembodied and abstract and completely at odds with astronomical time, with organic time. Uh, you're trying to, you know, raise a young child. There's a whole different sort of sense of time going on there. And this this new consensus sort of, well, let's say TikTok. Now, isn't it in TikTok? There we go, you know? That that's not by chance. It's not just because it's clever sounding. It really does have something to do with with the nature of time, and it there there's an algorithm for what ticked. I mean, we know it's sort of it's certainly not. Uh, it's about a minute, <laughs> you know. It's not you can push two minutes, but you know I don't know. It's it's about a minute, and that is a weird way to think of it, but. I wonder if this is the struggle that that we're we're losing history in that mm. McClellan sense, because we are getting more and more disembodied in a media sense, and we become not just these. I don't know. We've talked about the singularity before. You know, this science fiction idea that humans stop being human because of you know a convergence of technology, nanotechnology, AI, etc. But you and I have taken a view that there's a Jungian crisis happening already. This we don't have to go more, you know, android or cyborg than we are. That's kind of maybe not where the action is. We're already media creatures, you know. And I, I wonder if that if that paradigm shift is already metastasizing. We're certainly metabolizing that, but I think it's metastasized in a lot of consciousness. And and it's, I mean, look just look at the 
it's now so boring, you can't really even talk about it or comment on it. But people looking at their 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 smartphones and just, you know, thumbing through it, you think, what are they really doing? You know, it can't be personal messages. They're not getting, you know. Oh, it's so, it's so gauche and tacky and vulgar when I see people looking at their phones in public. I don't do it. I do not. I don't take my phone out of my pocket unless I'm waiting on a specific call or a text message and I'm checking to see if that's happened. I I refuse to do that. So there is, there's a lot in what you said that I think is very, very important. Taking it back to embodiment is really smart because it's getting to the subjective feeling of what it's like to be on social media the feeling of disembodiment that we're trying to articulate which is t- it's time based not physically based right because you are sitting in a chair or you are standing in the line at Walmart or whatever it's completely a time idea because when you look at a tweet First of all, you are sort of skin writing the person who wrote the initial tweet, right? You're sort of in their frame of reference. You, you've, you've gone into their world. They're, you're in their gravitational pull. So you're skin writing them. And then you, you are taking the position of both them and whether you agree or disagree yourself, right? And so you're you're in a sense, you are being two people at once. So there's a feeling of the compression of time. I think that might be why it seems to go by so quickly. But living two lives takes longer than living one. So the perception of it is that you're looking at it in the blink of an eye, but because of this disembodiment, because you are astrally projecting into the hell realm to meet this person halfway, time is going by outside of you very, very quickly. I don't know. In my earlier days, when I looked at my phone more often, I would be at a red light and I'd glance at it. And you can look at about three tweets before that light turns green. And you think to yourself, I've sat at this light a hundred times and it always takes two minutes. I looked at three, like I was just scrolling. Yeah. How did two minutes go by so quickly? Yeah. And it's, and it's because, you know, your body that you're embodied in is experiencing duality in that way. I wonder if it's not speeding time up when you do this. That's my contention that looking at this shit, might actually be turning the dial on time and making it go, literally go faster than it normally would. Well, I, I think it, it, it must be doing that. I mean, my, my sort of uh, metaphorical frame is uh, musical, is, is, is the changing of the time signature, but yeah. within tracks, you know, so you're getting this strange meshing and things begin to well they really do change shape i mean they change shape conceptually every bit as much as they do physically in 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 the in the the spatial realm because there's no question that time expands and 
then contracts and is compressed. And it seems to have a very peculiar subjective sort of element so that when you do get back to some objective frame, uh, there's always a little bit of a, of a shock. It's like coming out of a dream. And, and we've talked about porn time and casino time. You know, I mean, you see people coming out of casinos in, in, in on a summer day, particularly, and the hardcore people, you know, they always look a little blinded, you know, like moles. But it's not just the sunlight they're getting adjusted. It, it's a whole rhythm of structure yeah. that yeah. is Have entirely you ever... different than the clockwork mechanisms of the completely hermetically sealed casinos, you know. Have you ever been really engrossed in a really good film? And when you walk out of the movie theater, you feel a little bit dizzy. Yeah. Bonus bonus points if the sun has gone down while you were in the theater. But regardless, when you walk out, I'm thinking about this film I saw. The last film I went to go see before COVID was called Uncut Gems. It was the uh, Adam Sandler film where he's a degenerate gambler who ruins his life. I thought it was great, but it's... Yeah, that got good reviews, I remember, Yeah. It's a two-hour heart attack. It's for somebody like me who doesn't have a, a gambling bone in his body, watching somebody risk money over and over like that on stupid shit was harrowing, absolutely nerve-wracking. But I remember walking out of the movie theater feeling dazed. And like you said, I had to readjust to the rhythm of quote-unquote clock time. I had to get back at, oh, it's 8.30 at night. Okay, right. So we're... Oh, yep. I'm hungry. I'm a bit thirsty. Could go for a beer, right? It's about that time. But when you're in the film, especially if you're super engrossed in it, you're all thrown off by it. Film is different though, right? Because you're being told a story and it's a craft and it's art and it's music is the same way too. Those are the, those are the good angelic versions of what we're talking about. But looking at where even is my phone? Oh, it's in my pocket, of course. Looking at this thing, there's Gus again. Uh, <laughs> looking at this thing is, this is a scrying mirror. This is John D's scrying mirror. John yeah. D had a piece of obsidian that he would look into, or he'd have, um, he wouldn't look into it. He'd get a young boy to look into it because they're more magically adept. And we'll just leave it at that. Right. Uh, to see to see angels there's something about looking at this uh black screen that i think on an occult magical level really does take you outside of time and really does connect you with people in kind of a gross psychic std type of way uh that's just it's just not healthy it's interesting. I mean, guess is your screen, which makes perfect sense. That, yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, surmise the Colorado River, which I, I think I thought it was going to be a. I thought it was going to be a caliphagous young woman. Oh well, there. Are, uh, you know, I, I'm embarrassed because uh, <laughs> I thought you know my students might see something like that. And <laughs> I actually had a clean out of some of those. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's well, there was a, a really lovely shot of Lisa in in bit tasteful in blue jeans, but now I just thought now that would be a little bit you gotta gotta get rid of it. Yeah, you never know when someone else might just you know get look over get your shoulder. Yeah. yeah, but I wonder, you know, so that may if we're 
somehow virtual reality or, or augmented reality, which is this new entertainment form, which is, you know, we've had that as a theme in, in science fiction books and movies uh, to the point where I'm, I'm kind of just, you know, bored with, the, I think the matrix and some of the other, you know, uh, we have done did it so well. It's kind of hard to get with, but this is certainly coming on board as uh, the Netflix of the near future, don't you think? That Absolutely, yeah. Be, you know, um, good friend of mine today sent me some pictures from. Uh, he was doing a virtual reality test with some friends. He was killing zombies. Looked like fun. Uh, I'm more, I'm much more worried instead of virtual reality, you mentioned augmented reality. Mm -hmm. That to me is going to be, that's going to be an imposition of this, not just augmented reality, it's augmented time. It's different time. And something that scares me is the idea that if this really does affect time, if it really does speed up time in this way, and it's forced on you, are the powers that be forcing a fast forward button on your life, right? Like what's the, you, you will often talk to people in nursing homes who say it goes by fast. And you talk to people who have adult children and they look at me with Gus and they say, enjoy it. It goes by fast. And so maybe I'm being a little bit alarmist, but I can't help but think that they're just, there's a qualitatively different experience of time with this kind of augmented Twitter verse that we're all subject to now. I want to pick up on that. I You reminded me about the nursing home thing. One of the most uh, poignant, uh, simple lines that I've seen was when my stepfather was still alive, we, I went to visit him in the uh, assist well not assisted living a full-on nursing home that he was in and you mm -hmm. walk in and, and as with many of these uh there's a sign that says the year is you know this because it was not you know 2000 you know 14 but it would now be the year is 2023 you know because people just mm -hmm. don't have any idea with what's going which is a really weird thought and uh that is one of the questions you know that um paramedics or you know expedition leaders or you know people you know in some sort of leadership position uh for extreme sport or you know they're they're taught to ask people that kind of question often that very specific question if someone has lost consciousness or appears disoriented you know what year is it who's the president those are two american question that rangers for instance park rangers are are, are taught that level of um but here is the thought that that uh, as a parent, you know, you're facing so many of these decisions and there'll be many situations where you you don't get to make a decision. They're just sort of forced upon you in regards to, to parenting gas. It occurs to me that one very logical uh, development of where we're at now could be a reliance on virtual or augmented reality as an extension of online living and a reduction, an enforced reduction of, of travel by car or by, you know, to reduce carbon footprint 
just imagine like we get hyper concerned about, you know, the climate. And so we're doing less physically. And there's a movement of pressure, as we've seen with the rise of the computer, the rise of the internet, the rise of social media, to get more and more in our virtual sort of thing. Do, could you see a situation developing like in, in Gus's teenage years, maybe, you know, even sooner, where there's a class distinction between those people who are really part of the metaverse, because that is taking shape now, and people who are actively uh, rebelling against that. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a more nuanced look at what Luddite, you know, uh, tribal thinking may really go. Not rejection of machines, you know, in a simplistic way, but a rejection of the metaverse. I think... I think there will be, and I think that tech companies know this. You've seen the screenshots of Meta, Facebook's flagship metaverse thing, and everything looks like a silly cartoon. That's by design. The technology exists to have very nearly photorealistic virtual reality right now that already exists it looks like a cartoon people yeah. don't have legs because they don't want to scare people they don't want to scare people off they don't yeah, want it's to... the uncanny valley sort of issue yeah, yeah. they want to keep that they want to keep that barrier with people and you'll notice that i saw um a completely ai generated face today that was using eye contact technology so it's looking at you like the mona lisa as it's talking to you i won't say he because that's not a person. Uh, and so they release these little videos of the Boston Dynamics robots and the Boston Dynamics dogs and the AI eye contact thing and the metaverse with the silly cartoon characters with no legs on a drip so that they don't scare anybody because they're afraid of this very thing, which I think it makes total sense for them to be afraid of because people absolutely would push against it. The concern, of course, is that over time, this steady drip mentality has proven to be extremely effective with social media. Social media didn't always suck. It used to be fun. When it first arrived, it was fun. Cory Doctorow pointed this out in an article I read this week about how these companies start off as being beholden to their users because they need to capture you. They need to capture their your data. Then they become beholden to advertisers because they need to make money. And then after that, things begin to suck for both the user and the advertisers because now they're beholden to shareholders. So they don't care about that. They've got you. There's nowhere else for you to go. A lot of people don't leave Twitter or Facebook because where are they going to talk to their family members, right? So they have to sift through endless ads and stupid ideological diatribes from people they don't really care about because they're trapped. And that's the trick with virtual reality. And the way that they get you is that if you are Luddite-ish about metaverse virtual reality technology in any form whatsoever, if you see the stupid cartoons and you say, fuck that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. They tell you that you're overreacting, right? Because or it's that you're old. Slow, or that you're old, right? Like it's this slow drift. So they're like, what's the big deal? 
five years down the line, they've got you in a photorealistic AI generated virtual reality to save the world by reducing your carbon footprint. So you don't have to leave your house anymore. You can take a walk on the Santa Fe trail and it's photorealistic from the comfort of your home. You don't have to do anything. And so that is my concern. And that I know I'm going to seem crazy to Gus when he's rebellious and in his teenage years, he says like, dad, why can't I get the zombie shooter VR game? I'm like, because it's a slippery slope. <laughs> you can do that when you turn 18. Okay. Well, this is this is really good. I've got a few questions here now. Uh I'll you just triggered my I'll, I'll start with the one you just triggered. Can you honestly, using your extremely sharp mind, a writer's mind, can you really imagine? what Gus's teen rebellion will look like in terms of yeah. your, your family's manifestation of these bigger cultural uh, movements and vectors. You know, I mean, there was a time when it was all about maybe access to a car, the telephone and rock and roll. And then, mm-hmm. Those things started to change form a little bit, but not much, not much. And and you could argue they haven't, those paradigms are still at work. It's about independence, getting out from under the the family roof, you know, for sex, for drugs, or just to, you know, up up the parents, you know, just just to get away from them although maybe that's not going to happen maybe what's going to happen is that you know everyone's just going to stay real close to home so can you can you imagine i mean he's a spirited you know little oh, yeah. boy what's oh, yeah. it going to look like in uh, or like just say 10 years that that puts him about just preteen. okay can you we'll imagine do, that yeah. really or is it just too weird it is weird, but I do imagine that it would have something to do with whatever his friend group looks like at the time. That's what drove me. Yeah, okay. Uh, I wanted to be around my friends, particularly girls, uh, whenever I could. And I would leave the house at all, especially once I got a car, which is pushing the timeline a bit forward about by about four years. But even when I was 12, I was I was really into movies. I had a huge DVD collection and I was big into my friend group and skateboarding and I just wanted to get out in a way. This is pre uh, MySpace. This was when you would go to somebody's house and not ask them for the Wi-Fi password. You would ask them, do you have internet in the house? Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was different. Oh dear. That really hits home. <laughs> so uh, let me ask, can you see any of, of that forming already? I mean, you must, uh, you and Rios both must know some people, you know, kind of near your your peer group as yep. young, you know, young parents, and mm-hmm. you look at their kids and maybe start seeing what some of their because I know a lot of uh, you'd also have friends who have not gone down uh, the family route for whatever reason or haven't yet. Um, so can you see that that larger peer group yep. sort of forming? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine today. We were talking about YouTube 
and how both of our children, no matter how they try to make them colorful and, and, and appealing, how our children know when, in, when a commercial's on and how they've at two years old, they know how to skip it. They know that you can press a button to skip an advertisement. Uh, the major question that my peer group has and that we talk about a lot is screen time and how much they're viewing this kind of stuff in a way that my parents, frankly, didn't care about uh, television, which is not a dig on my parents because television, uh, you know, it's the idiot box. It'll rot your brain, all this kind of stuff. They weren't really thinking about, you know, I mean, it's Sesame Street and whatever. But the the trick was, I think, at the end of the day that we didn't have control over what we saw. We didn't have the option to skip commercials. No, I think that that's a really important thing. And we've talked about that somewhere. And we, we were talking about pressing the pause button. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think actually I, I started the show and you had a lot to say about how that that was a real line of demarcation in, in, mm-hmm. in relatively recent times. And I think that is enormous. And I think that has very far ranging uh, implications about uh, not just space and time, but, but people customizing things and thinking they can have access at any, at any moment. Exactly. And and I think that gets back to what McLuhan was saying about when you have sort of an instantaneous or all time access, have you lost therefore any sense of time and, and a consensus framework for it? Has that kind of weirdly evaporate or certainly become, if not disembodied fully abstracted in a really peculiar way? Yeah, totally abstracted. And if you think about, there's this great book by Leonard Schlein called Alphabet versus the Goddess, where he tracks creation myths being very matronly. Uh, And then as sort of organized religion took hold, you'd have male gods tearing female gods apart and using their body parts to, to build things. That's what comes to mind when I think of McLuhan's societal body right now what's happening is a kind of tearing apart of that body and utilizing its parts not for mountains and rivers and landscapes but for your own personal macabre silence of the lambs serial killer den in your own house right like we're, we're tearing apart that societal body so that we can use the so that we can strip it for parts basically uh, well i think that's a really um I, I think this has happened beautifully organically because it's flowed back around to what I thought would be kind of a good way to uh, review this this sort of yeah. circular uh, path that we've been on because there's so much talk today about equity and we don't really know how that what that means and how that works. But certainly equity has got to have something to do with time and that everyone relates to it in a, in some sort of fair way, which we know isn't possible. And, and I got onto this bit in the, in the Lapham's quarterly, which I think is um, it's beautifully placed, but the heading is lived time, average lifespan. A firefly's average life is two months. As a kid, I loved fireflies. I remember catching fireflies in a jar 
with my cousins back in suburban Michigan. I never saw them again, but I, I really got along very well with them. And we were freaking out, sleeping down in the basement on a really humid summer night with these lightning bugs or fireflies in a jar. A porcupine. Don't often think about porcupines. We probably should more. They live for six years. Ravens, and I'm fascinated because ravens are around me. And you mentioned pikers, you know, and crows. You'd think ravens are sort of crow-like or just big crows, but it's not true at all. Crows are, um, you know, really flock, and ravens are very solitary and much larger. They live for 13 years. I think that's interesting. A Canada goose, they fly over my house on a beautiful, absolute, straight, true bearing every year, south and north. They live for 24 years. Saltwater crocodiles live for 70, which are about the human lifespan. Really? Yeah. Wow. And a Galapagos tortoise, 100 years. But a hydrocarbon seep tube worm lives for 250 years. And that got me thinking about... uh, I think I've mentioned my friend Joe, who is part of a group uh, in a town in the Phoenix area, ask, uh, who are immortalists. You know, mm-hmm. they, they mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure how this, I sort of only talk so much about that with Joe. But we, we've noticed, and, and, and there have been some articles lately about these very wealthy, uh, you know, people in the billionaire class or millionaire class going to elaborate lengths to preserve their health. Uh, Ray Kurtzfeld, who uh, you know, is head of technology at Google and is a, one of our visionary futurists, I think he takes about, I don't know, 300 supplements every morning and is committed to you know, living forever. And as with space travel you know, and these luxury bunkers and luxury yachts, a lot of people believe that the super wealthy are intending to try to live forever, which makes sense because they have the means and they're going to look at any possibility from uploading into some sort of biotech cyborg sort of creation to uh, a full virtual metaverse reality to preserving their physical carbon-based life form, you know, as, as long as they can. So there's ownership, there's a kind of colonization of time, not just commodification of it, but control of it. But that ain't going to be diverse. It's not diverse now. It's not fair and equitable how our healthcare system works. I'm going through some hoops just to uh, to get a referral from my doctor, you know. And we know there's a crisis on that front. So is this just an inevitable sort of playing out that we're going to get this super elite group who, as long as they can defend themselves and, mm. and keep separate from the hoi polloi and the great unwashed and not get burned at the stake, that they're going to try to live forever and change the nature of time that way. Is that just a, a, a guarantee? Is, are we already on that plot line? Absolutely. That's absolutely coming. 
And I think that the only in the <clears throat> you bringing up equity in terms of the extension of life to me unlocked it in my brain about how the uploads are going to work because the carbon-based preservation is obviously segregated by class and will remain so that's not going to change there's there's nothing you can do not just because of the expense but because they capital T they they don't want the unwashed masses living for 300 years ugh gross we we can't have that we've got to keep cycling those people out or you could let them live and then put you could sterilize them uh to keep the population down but what's much more likely to have happen and i could see this i can see it so clearly people becoming brainwashed into genuinely believing that you can upload human consciousness onto a hard drive to be reprinted at a future date or to exist in a kind of metaverse and that being rolled out under the guise of equity and inclusion. Why does Elon Musk get to live for 500 years? Well, guess what? Now we all get to live forever in a computer and it doesn't matter if you're a, it wouldn't it be darkly hilarious that we had people who like, you know, Calvinists laboring their entire lives because of a sense of determinism, uh, you know, they're going to heaven and their only job on earth is to, is to work until they get there to their predestined route. And we would just be right back into that, right? Work now while you have a carbon-based shell so that when the ghost that's in that shell needs to come out, we've got this waiting for you. You know how this the the sword of Damocles is going to hang over everybody when that's the case? Like, yeah. Get back to your cube. Make sure that you're producing because you're behind. And unless you get 30 cubits in the next 30 years, and it's not looking good for you, the lights go out, you're done. See what's odd about that, and I, I I certainly see the scenario you're you know you're putting forth, is that we're headed in 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 a pretty uh, foreseeable future. The question mm-hmm. of productivity being what well, what does that actually mean? I mean, what do so many people do now? Do we really need all these people? You know, the office managers, COVID showed us we don't need people you know in the offices they're not doing anything they're on social media they're watching porn you know they're only if there's a huge class divergence of people we really need but if if bodies start to go out of fashion and everybody uploads and providing we can keep the the power on i think we you know we need electricity we need if you know there's got to be some embodiment but it, it, it could be less and less. I mean, do we need all these people? Do we need, and if people are going to be living forever or hundreds of years, how will they stay hip and cool and connected to mm. everyone? What happens? I mean, already you look yeah. at people and you think, 
Jesus, I don't know, 25 years seems like a long time to be old. <laughs> you know, not just old physically, but to, to have no one looking at your body and going, oh, what a hot number, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no, that's just long gone. That just disappears. And to not mm-hmm. know any of the names in, in the tablets or on social media. going Generations over. Generations over. Yeah. But you, but you answered the question, though. Why would you keep people around uh, power to keep the power, not not political power or anything like that, but literal electricity power? They've already the introduced- matrix theme of, of, the, 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 of the right. Battery, That's the human yeah. battery. Then they've introduced yeah. they've introduced a, a kind of idea, a concept, a patent to create a device that you plug into a metaverse and you do work, and the electricity that your brain generates uh, mines Bitcoin. It's a Bitcoin miner, mm-hmm. right? Where the power for that comes from. And it's only a few steps from there to people becoming literal batteries that they where they plug in and you know. But we're getting into cyberpunk territory. And I do want to get to the ending segments here. Uh, okay. Yes. Well, uh, we've got but we can got, pick that up. I, I can talk about time, this. But yeah. We'll uh I think we I think we might be ready for the imaginative challenge response. And oh, we can, yes. We yes, can pick yes. up some of these other time themes next time, so to speak. Yeah, it's so hard to think of another word <laughs> on our next episode. Okay. Noctane. Here we go. So the showrunner, who is currently in a lesbian relationship and is addicted to cocaine. She meets her girlfriend at a support group for former cult members. She grew up in a cult. Okay. Like it. And they they bond over their shared experiences. But whereas the showrunner, because of the pressures of Hollywood, has become addicted to cocaine. Any kind of speed, really. Just anything that gets her going. Her girlfriend is a teetotaler. So the showrunner is hiding her addiction from her girlfriend. Oh, okay. Now, in the context of the show, we have uh, a woman who meets this man, a mysteriously effeminate man, maybe a bit androgynous. Okay, interesting. And... In this case, the showrunner has put herself not into the body of the woman, but into the body of the demonic serial killer type person. Uh-huh. So she sees, she sees herself as him, not her. Her girlfriend is the main character. Oh, that's a nice flip. I like that. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So the girl, so the main character in this story meets this man at a meeting for former cult members, right? And she's in a bit of a pickle because when she was in that cult, she recognized it as such. She saw the horrible things that the cult did. And yet she had extremely vivid, powerful visions of heaven while she was in that cult. And she can't shake them. She can't convince herself that it was all in her head, that it wasn't real. And that leads her into a kind of seedy, psychosexual appreciation for pain and torment and all the ugly things that life has to offer. 
That was just beautiful language, just right. <laughs> so she meets this guy, and the guy says, Oh my God, me too. I have the exact same thing, but have you tried this drug? It's called Noctane. And she says, well, what is that? He says, well, have you heard of DMT? When people take DMT, they go to this realm and they meet these elves and they see the afterlife. He said, well, Noctane gives you a vision of hell. So while it's not going to shake you of your heavenly experience, it might balance it out a little bit. And she says, why in the fuck would people take that? I have no idea why I would want to do that. And then she's, she goes off and she's thinking about it and and she's just aching and longing because of this, this great sense of love and connection that she got from this heavenly vision that she, this angelic vision that she had. So she goes to the boyfriend and she says, uh, okay, give me a hit. So he gives her this red pill and she takes it and she sees the most awful thing. She's in the Christian conception of hell. There's demons and fire and all this kind of stuff. She comes out of it, and this is where the show really starts to pick up, because now she begins to be followed by men in black. Now she's starting to see Jacob's Ladder-style demons around every turn, and the boyfriend, there's definitely something off about him. He's got a basement that nobody's allowed to go in. He's got friends that mysteriously disappear, and he's got a lot of very bizarre posters on his wall of torture, rape, murder, all kind of dismissed with the wave of a hand and like, girl, one day, one day you'll appreciate good art. I promise. Well, the showrunner doesn't know how to end this episode. She's not sure. And so she is with her teetotaler girlfriend and she's gone on a real binge because she's been up all night working on this thing. She can't figure out the ending. Where do I go for just, just the first episode, right? Things are going off the rails. Where do I go? Sniff, 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 sniff. And she finally goes to bed. Her girlfriend is up, has some idea of what's going on, and points out to the showrunner, your nose is your nose is bleeding a little bit. And the showrunner says, Oh shit. And the girlfriend says, Listen, you know, I, I get it. You got a stressful job, but when when you get done with this little binge that you're on, you and me, we're gonna talk. And the showrunner says, Okay, great but I've got it. So she goes back and she writes the ending to it, to this pilot. And the ending to it is that our main character uh, comes home from work after having a particularly hairy experience being followed home by these shadowy figures or whatever, comes home to the boyfriend and walks in and they're having this discussion. And she's talking about like the things that, that she sees and her boyfriend's nose begins to bleed, right? And on an impulse, she goes over to it and kisses it, blood and all, just begins to kiss his face. And when the blood hits her tongue, she once again has a noctane vision of hell. Oh. And... Wow, that's lovely. That was that was really uh, very musically constructed. I thought that that had some real, I mean, obviously, you know, you can tell you're a writer. I think that was really, really interesting. I would love to see that. I love the mention of of the Jacob's Ladder. Type. That's one of my favorite mm -hmm. movies. I think that's exactly the right style of the demons. Mm -hmm. Almost sort of things you see out of the corner of your eye. You know, nothing, nothing really. 
you're not, there's not that full commitment. There, there is an ambiguity that, mm-hmm. that continues to work through that. Is this yeah. person insane or are we dealing with a, a supernatural permeable membrane between the worlds of creatures going on? I like that very much. I thought that was an excellent, excellent management of a complex meta yeah. <laughs> story uh, assignment. That was really cool. Yeah. I forgot to I forgot to mention that the, the showrunner's girlfriend would go and kiss her and get a little bit of blood on her tongue. And that was what was going to do it. Missed that part, but that's what happens. No, no, I, I get that. I, it, yeah. I, I, no, that's yeah. per. I, I think that's yeah. Mm-hmm. You didn't almost need, did, you know, you didn't need to yeah. say that really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think yeah. that's that's it. That's the connection of of one plane of of existence moving into the meta, meta the dream sort of side of the story. I thought that's okay. really good. Yeah, I think of Jacob's Ladder, one of the best shots in that movie, and it's full of great ones. Very creepy, spooky that's never really fully been replicated is when he just sees a taxi cab driving away and yeah. there's a guy in the back and the guy's head is yeah, like, yeah. like twitching way too fast. And you're just like, Oh my, what the hell is that? <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's just a very, a- very disturbing technique. Very disturbing. Mm-hmm. That film mm-hmm. technique. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some, I, I love the, on the subway, the, the appendage, that's sort mm-hmm. of ripped, you know, it's just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Everything yeah. about that, the sense of the demons, that very fine line. But that's, I'm glad you really brought that up because that was, uh, I mean, I really do love that that movie a lot. Um, interesting, the same guy wrote Ghost, you know, the much more. Romantic, yeah, same sort of thing. With Still frightened me when I was a child. The, the ending scene when the guy's kind of dragged off by the wraiths. Yeah. That, that yeah. bit. That's one of my early film memories, along with the chestburster alien, and oddly enough, E.T. <laughs> as being very frightening to me as a child. Those, That's those. Specific- I can certainly see the other, but you know, and David Lynch picks up on it with the, you know, the. I think he calls them woodmen, woodsmen mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. come, you know, and and uh, in got a light. <laughs> yeah that that's that's the i love that that particular episode but they can they bring uh kyle uh you know agent cooper or one of his doppelgangers back to life a few times that technique of those sort of shadowy mm-hmm. action mm-hmm. figures mm-hmm. yeah but i think that that was exactly the kind of, of feeling of that tension between the supernatural and the insane, you know, mental mm-hmm. illness versus demons, which is it? Those two worldviews. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's another thing maybe we could pick up next time about uh, the new paradigm will have to embrace something to do with mental health. Mm-hmm. And we, mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about mental, but I think we're getting some new forms and we know of some forms of mental illness that were considered absolutely in the book, you know, only three years ago, are now really quite trendy. And Mm -hmm. where that might go, that might be an interesting way to sort of uh, just, I'll throw a stone in the water and let it ripple out for maybe what we look at next time. Paradigms about moving from time to notions of mental time and structure and therefore mental illness you know different types of yeah yeah mental illness yeah it's you know intense agoraphobia is praised hypochondria is praised 
some other more dicey subjects are. <laughs> see the guy I see like an, I, I'm just, the New York post is the new uh, world weekly news for me. I just love what they do, but the mm -hmm. guy who has the $23,000 wolf suit, the Japanese dude. Oh, I, I, I think I see, have a look in your messages. It's, it's an amazing, it's not just a furry. Oh, yes, 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 yes. It's yes. not a mascot costume. It's a bit more legitimate and intense. It looks like it could have cost $23,000, but he wears that to escape from relationships with humans pointedly, you know? So, and everyone goes, well, he's, he had the 23, you know, it's, it's his wolf suit. You know, he's no, not no. It's weird. It's weird. It's not okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not okay. It's it's absolutely weird. But I thought that was a great job on Noctane. I I think I love the uh, well. I think that religious sort of connection with the blood, the kiss, mm -hmm. the revel. You know, the the realization coming from that, the crossing over between the worlds. The link back to Noctane is the drug that stimulates these infernal visions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of a Dante-esque sort of uh, scene there. I like that. That was really well done. Really Thank well you. done. I'm glad. I'm glad. Okay. Are we ready for the tool? Ready for the tool and the tip. I'm still listening to you. I'm just going to go. I, I got some sticky stuff on my fingers. I'll, I'll be right back. Okay. All right. Well, the tool starts this way. Consider the peculiar power of titles. The idea of a title for a work of art, song, book, for a person. But particularly in the context of, of art or, or any human creation, untitled, in quotation marks, becomes a title, doesn't it? We see that in a lot of instances, a lot of works of visual art, paintings, et cetera, poems. They be untitled still is a title. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very, very peculiar word concept to uh, get our minds around. And if you do mull on it for a while, you might get some ripples forming. Try to think of another word concept with associated characteristics, whereby its meaning seems so obvious that any explanation becomes instantly circular. You know, like we were talking about nature at the start of this episode. It's, well, that's just the way it is. It's inherent in being. You can't even get to it because it's somehow both protected and open to the point where you, you can't, there's nothing to access because it's it's just there everywhere. But even a nullification reinforces it. You know, untitled becomes a title. That's that's a strange little paradox of language. Now, I suggest that if you do think about that a while in a relaxed moment, perhaps with uh, a favorite beverage or maybe some uh, a kind of visionary sort of substance for for assistance. When you do arrive at a complementary or related idea, and one will clearly form in your mind, if you, if you just do give this some relaxed thought, you will immediately 
have a third related idea occur to you. And I encourage you then to start trying to diagram that triad, even just on a little piece of note paper, just to sort of, it's a very peculiar thing, but think about how untitled is itself a kind of title. What is that word category, that idea category? How does that work? Let your mind just, just drift around that, like incense smoke in a room. Let it just drift around. And the moment that a related idea that can be sort of even put in any philosophical terms is connected. There are lots of strange features of language that where that kind of principle is at work. And it's hard to say what the principle is, but even, as I said, even its nullification reinforces it. it it's, a, it's witness to itself. The moment you have that second related idea, some sort of echo, some sort of reflection or shadow, a third will appear. And you'll see a triadic resonance, a harmonic system almost, form. And it's a little bit of a mind blow because it, it will you'll oscillate back and forth between seeing something about how your mind works, which is our ongoing feature of, of trying to work out our own deep algorithms, but something in the world that you've, you notice all the time and just, it, it hasn't been as clear. And it really only takes, I don't know, 15 minutes of just relaxed thought. Just let your mind work on that idea of, of a title why is untitled the title of a painting? How does that work? That does, that's a contradiction. Language and thought are filled with contradictions, filled with them. It becomes an enormous taxonomy of contradictions. And you will get one little thread and it starts, for me, the mind, I, I really felt almost like Jack and the Beanstalk. I really felt I had two beans and suddenly I didn't have three beans. I had a beanstalk and I was mm. going, wow. And I wasn't even hot. You know, I was really just relaxed moment, just thinking. And I thought if nothing else that has said to me a lot about how my backstage mind works that I didn't, art I hadn't articulated before. So that's, that's a tool. And the tip is, is, is also strenuous, uh, but I think it's good. It's also very simple and it's also free. <laughs> I happen to be looking through, I just, I use maps as, as meditation tools. And we've talked a lot about the importance of maps. And I was looking at one of Antarctica and I noticed Queen Maud land. And it looked quite beautiful visually, very sort of stark and minimalist, as you'd expect. And I thought, well, that's very, you know, Queen Maud. I don't know enough about Norwegian history to sort of get with that. They're kind of all their names for their portion of Antarctica. And there are a few countries, of course, that are involved in that. It's an interesting uh, multinational, multi-collaborative uh, uh, continent. Maybe the continent that is working best in terms of international cooperation. But 
I, I got curious and I, I, I went and looked at some pictures. I know what the raw size shelf looks like. I know what a large, you know, but I, had, I wasn't. And Queen Maudland is just absolutely, it's so intense and so inspiring and so forbidding. It's just ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And I looked at the these series of beautiful state-of-the-art David Attenborough natural history, uh, Smithsonian National Geographic, you know, the highest quality photographs. And I thought to myself, I'm going to keep looking at these images and not dismiss them as cliches because they're too beautiful. They're too surreal. They're too beyond, you know, the reality I'm dealing with. I'm going to try to, yes, that's what I'm talking about. I'm looking course, at it as, for the listeners, I'm, I'm looking at it as he's talking and I just showed him the picture. You, you could plug many sort of landscapes into this, but it's so extreme because it is one of the polar uh, environments, this great mysterious haunted, you know, continent at the bottom. They look the, like wizard hats. They, it, it looks like a dream. It just, it looks yeah. so intense, but I was, when I, I, I looked and I, I felt myself receding and needing to retreat from the images. I had a strange thought. I thought about playing my, practice marimba and how it really takes some physical effort to get some chops up mm-hmm. to keep rehearsing and practicing it's very forearm intent because it's there's a lot of but it's also just the placement of the body and it's like i found with my with blow gunning is that it's a total body thing it isn't you know that you have to really be positioned to really do it it's like anything and it takes some some exercise stamina. And I thought, you know, what we need is with our attention, and I'm, I'm going to incorporate this into some of the cognitive teachings and workshops, wonder stamina, mm. wonder stamina. Wonder Break span. through the, the barrier of going, oh, that's just so beautiful. I just can't look at it. Or just, or it's just a cliche, or it's just wherever the word just appears. Deal with it. Deal with the the intensity of it to the point where you can start to see some nuance, some shades, and then the reality of it starts to fade back in. And you suddenly see, well, this isn't merely or just a gorgeously composed photograph taken by an expert in extreme conditions, which 99% of the world will never be able to see in the flesh that begins to vanish and something else starts creeping through. And I think that is a really powerful, it's a kind of a Wordsworthian moment. You know, he, he, you know, he talks about seeing into the life of things. I'm talking about when the life of things starts to seep back into us, but you have to get some chops. You need wonder stamina to not sort of, you know, and I think this applies to a lot of things. It's, uh, you know, we're getting bombarded with imagery 
we've talked about sort of being overwhelmed by beautiful, voluptuous female flesh to the point where, I don't know, a lot of these bikini shots are, are kind of becoming cliche. I still look, uh, <laughs> I've got a, you know, I'm, I'm a butt man. So if there's, you know, a shapely hind in, I'm going to look, but I feel that kind of resentment. I feel like I'm being sort of manipulated and I'm not in control because my wonder stamina isn't good, mm. you know? And like going to connect finally back to the marimba, you know, it's so easy just to pick up the mouse, take off the couch, you know, do a little bit. And it's like, okay, yeah, fine. But then to try to push that, you know, mm. all, then it's starting to feel like the rowing machine or weights or, you know, it's suddenly feeling a little bit difficult. It's like reading Finnegan's Wake. It's suddenly like, oh, you know, oh, I'm going to have to work at this. and push on through that. But I think that we have a real attention span problem with wonder and these archetypal notions of beauty mm. and intensity. And we therefore can't, we don't feel comfortable finally measuring ourselves against that because we start to lose our, our shape and form. We're not just figures in a landscape. We're overwhelmed by the landscape, even if it's disembodied in the form of a photograph or documentary. Right. right, right. I like that. I had a similar experience, although mine was not landscape or geographical, but it was definitely wonder. <clears throat> Rios and I were watching a television show called The White Lotus which takes place in Italy. Remember you talked about, a, yeah. And there was a bit in there. It has this great soundtrack full of Italian uh, sort of acoustic guitar and, and you know, singing. And there was a bit where there was a opera piece playing. Gus is sitting on the couch with us and he likes to sing. Uh, he, he'll often, it's more screaming than singing. <laughs> but as the singer in the show the opera singer was was you know really hitting it very beautiful tune i look over at gus and he's got his face scrunched up like like a diva like a singer he's got his hand out like this and he's going like Ugh! like he's feeling it man he's feeling the tune and the way his little face was scrunched up in this his first feeling of being truly moved by a piece of music, right? So moved that he had to just, you could see it, you know, he was making that stink face, like he's smelling something bad, but but it's really like good. Billy Idol. Yeah, like Billy Idol. And it was just- A young Billy Idol. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was so beautiful. Uh, that it felt like a like a heavy color was pressing on my chest, you know, and I was I'm not gonna run away from this. I'm gonna move into it, right? And I'm gonna really kind of feel all of the things. I like the application of it to great architectural works because when I do social media, it's mostly Pinterest, mm -hmm. which is known known mostly for you know housewives stay-at-home moms looking at recipes and things like that but it's a great way to peruse photographs of of architectural 
you know, like the 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 canyon, the Grand Canyon, and all of its very various, you know, sundry offshoots, and you know, Angkor Wat. And I will find myself just kind of looking at those pictures for a long period of time and taking them in. I think those can be enormously soothing, and to use another word of, of words, repairing. That mm-hmm. architecture is is often, I think, very powerful. Uh, in the same way that, that certain kinds of music are, are for people, but architecture is all about structure that works in, in that way. And I I think that it's a powerful, powerful way to. Uh, I draw a lot of inspiration from that. I, uh, I I'm I'm been excited about architecture my whole life. I just never had a, a any aptitude for it, but I've been just passionately interested in it. But I find that it works wonders to, uh, and Tashin has some beautiful, mm-hmm, books. Mm-hmm. We talked about that publishing company. Some of their really, they have some just beautiful books on all of the major architects uh, of the modern age and some great examples of, of residential and house stuff, which is also just terribly fun to look at and make it makes you drool thinking, God, I'd like that, I'd like that, I'd like that. Mm-hmm. But it does build up that stamina, those chops for taking on board intensely encoded visual information that could be easily overwhelming sort of the beauty center of the, you know, and, and overstimulating the front, frontal lobes and not getting deep enough if we want to look at it in a sort of, you know, physical embodied brain sense. Yeah, absolutely. Really good. Yeah. Good and it's, a, it, and it's important too. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> nothing really fights against the gray deadened landscape of our culture and our social media usage and everything that we talked about in this episode uh, by then building what are essentially aesthetic muscles. I think that's really, that was the, yeah, that's a nice nutshell for the whole thing, because that's really what it was at for me. And I think that any way you do it is is a good way to do it. But I think the notion that we can't uh, talk about our mental, and for us, it's sort of mind-spirit muscles. But yeah, it is the same principle. That's what embodiment means, is to to stretch out and to limber up and build up some stamina and to use, you know, some, some muscles in different ways. Like if you go back, you know, you could be a really great kayaker and I don't care if you haven't been kayaking for a few months, it's a whole deal and it can be really painful to get back into, and you have the standard of what you're, you know, what you were capable of before. And we've got to start encouraging that in, in young people, particularly. I see a real divergence in my students from those who get that idea. And you can kind of see that they've got that idea in their physical lives too, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they know that a certain amount of effort is just goes without saying. And other people are really resisting that. They just, you know, if it doesn't come instantly and if it's not without effort, then they just can't deal with it. And the whole point is that the effort is what the lesson really is. That's the nutrition. The effort is the nutrition. The work is the nutrition. Absolutely. Okay, so here's the dream situation, and I'm I'm really open to 
uh, help interpreting this. It both links to dreams I've had for a very long time, certainly over 15 years. Uh, and it's also, it was just so incredibly vivid, rich, and detailed. But it begins with a, this, this theme of composite places that I've been on for a while, where certain places are really coming back and, and they, they are repeating. Um, this one is, is very hard. It's odd to describe. It would appear to be the kind of, of sort of cabin very middle class, working class sort of cat, the kind of place that that a working class family could have afforded for uh, a couple of days summer vacation. And there are no fences between the houses. It's sort of, oh, but there's sort of woods and not pine woods. And then as I sort of deepen into the dream, I'm in my house and i'm not in a vacation this is actually my property so i'm starting to become more part of the landscape and i'm hearing noises that wake me up i have a dog but the the dog becomes vague and the female partner is not there at the moment so i'm home alone with this and i'm hearing this sound these sounds and i go out the door and there are workmen on my property and the fact that there aren't fences is is part of the problem but i know it's they're on my property they are workers for a local big shot and they're a real mixed bag of there are some skilled workers and they're also sort of some kind of hillbilly ruffians and I know it's at this point it start linking in in real life to some experiences in the Australian rural environment, some fairly sort of weird, rough people. And I did live next to a three generation Irish family of high level thieves. They were stealing, uh, you know, real agricultural equipment, road equipment, cars. Uh, their branch of the family didn't do the drugs, but they were they were professional criminals and they would take turns going to prison and they were intense. There was another guy in real life who is the figure in my dream. He had been uh, a real local patriarch. He was in the earth moving and construction business. This is the real life guy. And he'd been involved in the building of one of the major reservoirs nearby. And I had a, a, a dealing with him trying to buy some property from him. And I really, I felt he really jerked me around. And I, I got a terrible grudge against him, which was way out of proportion to what was going on. But in the dream, some figure like him is behind this all. And all these people on my property are working for him at his orders. And they're really starting to take over. And I'm really, really pissed off. And there's a couple of the guys I can actually sort of talk to because they're they're skilled tradesmen who've just been hired to do a job, but there's a bunch of, of their hangers on and there become more and more of them, like 30 or 40 people. And a couple of them I see have actually taken up kind of temporary residence. 
And they're more sort of nasty, uh, rural, hillbilly, uh, kind of white trash, not, not good people. And they're part of this larger network. And they have absolute assurance in their minds that there's nothing I can do about this invasion and that I might as well just turn over the keys to my house. And I just have this sickening level of anxiety because I'm so outnumbered. Some of them are at the feral level of, of violence that there would be no talking to them anyway. It would be a firearm shotgun engagement, if anything. There's just no other way. And then there's this obsequious sense that this patriarchal leader, gang leader, you know, figure behind it all, who's not present, nonetheless has such local clout with the authorities, like the and a, a local yeah. constable shows up and completely takes their side. And I have lost any kind of civic, you know, leverage. You know, we're all, you know, local citizens here. No, we're not. No, we're not. Mm -hmm. So the the invasion is happening on multiple levels from a very adult civic who's bigger in the community down to the very uh, feral, you know, pub level violence, but on my property. And it was a really, really disturbing dream. And it just it seemed to churn up so many things about class, about uh, authorities, you know, police and and civic authorities like a mayor and the community, uh, certainly property lines and boundaries. And behind it all, this weird sense that this, env the environment I was in was truly more real, you know, and it was real in a way that nothing, I was almost relieved, you know, to wake up, to get back to kind of what is all, you know, you can sometimes wake up and feel a terrible sense of disappointment, maybe even sorrow that you've glimpsed, you know, uh, the other worlds, the plurality of secret worlds that, and you think, God, there's so much intensity there. And here it's just about some telemarketing calling. I was, I was glad to escape that. So what do you think of that? It was it was pretty basic sort of dream in a way, but the the, the levels of it. There's a few things. Uh, it's interesting, first of all, that you're living in a place that doesn't have any kind of fences. So you have this property demarcation, but there aren't the fences there to, to keep it up. So there's already the sense that the borders are being diminished and that the, the horde the feral horde is coming right. through. Uh, I, I wrote down, um, you know, you had this, this grudge against this guy and it made me wonder if grudges aren't sort of rooted in the fear of them doing it again. So it's not based in the past, but more based in their, in the probability that they'll repeat their themselves. And then I, I got thinking about, you know, this grudge because the way that it, you know, manifested with these feral bogan hillbillies that are on your property, 
seemed to me to feel a bit demonic. And I was thinking about the Japanese conception of a grudge, which is that if if somebody is murdered, this is popularized in a film called The Grudge. I don't know if you've seen Juan the Grudge. But no, uh, the idea that um, I just stabbed myself in the leg. <laughs> the idea that uh, when a grudge isn't cleared, when a space isn't cleared, it can actually grow to inhabit the space itself. And so the space becomes cursed with this uh, with this grudge. And so a part of me thinks not in terms of the material, in terms of, you know, oh, you had this, this psychological incident happen to you in which you felt powerless and that this person was getting one over on you and, oh my God, might they do it again? And it's coming out and manifesting in this dream. But I wonder in a much more dream time type of way, if that's not if these creatures, if this grudge, this curse that's, that's stuck with you has created its own dream reality, right. That you were then in. And it's interesting, right. When you say that it feels realer than real and how that can be both a positive and a negative, depending on the content of the dream, because if you're having sex and you wake up, you might be like, Oh man, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I want to go, go back put, to put me back in, put me back in. Uh, but that's, that's an interesting, um, the idea of dreams being more real than reality, I think has to do with levels of dilution and concentration. And the fact that dreams are concentrated reality rather than something different from it. And, uh, but yeah, but I just, I wonder if, you know, if there isn't work, meditative work to do to, uh, you know, kind of release yourself from that, because, you know, think about like the kind of things that you carry when, when something like that happens, you know, it's, um, this took place in Australia. Yeah. This, this, yeah. Any real background took place there. And it was, Mm -hmm. it was also my first real, uh, exposure to what, you know, kind of rural living. I mean, there are equivalents of it here. I could easily find that, but I don't, I don't have that sense. It's all alive and still there in that context. Right. Right. And it's, you, you had a very simple, but very beautiful phrase earlier on when you were talking about the tool where you said uh, it's the same as anything, right. (laughs) Which I like, I like the idea of, you know, it's the same as anything, meaning that there are these kind of, uh, archetypal inalterable formats that you can place onto anything, you know, like working out and looking at a beautiful picture. It's the same as anything, right? You just, you kind of have to do that in the, in the dream context, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, these sort of, uh, natives to a land, uh, having some kind of civic leverage over you and the powerlessness and the helpless, it's the same as anything. I mean, it's the same as waking up in the morning. If you think too hard about it, right. I mean, we can all be crushed (laughs) i get the feeling i get this feeling anytime i see a police officer anytime anytime and friends will ask me are you fright are you scared of police and i said it's less a feeling of of fear i don't know how to articulate the the feeling of seeing a gun on someone's hip and knowing that they could use it on you and mostly walk away scot-free right i mean they'll they just fill out some paperwork and get away with it and that's the sense that I get from this dream too. There's, you know, you mentioned the the threat of violence from some of these dream creatures as as being not just 
you know, it's not just that, uh, that they're going to do this to you, but it's that they're going to get away with it. Yes. That's the crucial part of it. To me, yeah. that was really where the fear and the anxiety. And if, uh, I, I did just think if, if people want a, a reference, it, it follows a little bit on the line of the walking tall movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Scenario. Uh, in, in that case, the, the protagonist, uh, Joe Don Baker. Yeah, he, he he's from there, whereas I'm definitely not mm-hmm. from there, either in the dream world or in the real context. Uh, but it's that sense that that the the this this leader figure, shadowy, kind of controlling, and and all these people are working or doing his bidding, that he's got more clout in mm-hmm. the community mm-hmm. and anything that that is that nothing I can do is going to get through. There is no equity here and uh here's an and, but i i love your focus on the word grudge because i think that is so important a word it links back to a great deal of how culture has formed over time i mean you think of the passionate sort of romance language cultures of you know sword fights and duels and revenge you know revenge is a huge theme still and uh, I mean, Death Wish and on and on. All these movies are and, and, and stories are often about revenge. The whole grudge management thing is the basis of Icelandic literature and a lot of Germanic literature. So Bible, you know, yeah. the sins of the father, you know, all this keeps going. And I think this is a great thing to talk about in terms of time and history with ideas of reparations and, you know, you know, how does all that sort of work? So all this is going on, but I, I have just, you've helped me think that in, in the real life scenario, this guy, Ron Rice, who was just, I mean, he, he was a patriarchal figure. He had a bunch of kids and their kids, you know, grew up and, and they were a, a powerful family in uh, in central victoria but the dispute that i had with him was uh about a block of of bush land that if we had that was the big decision that my then wife and i were deciding about whether or not kind of to to go ahead and develop that and Mm -hmm. that would have been one project or a baby and another sort of track. And we ended up doing neither because yeah. that deal right. fell apart. And I was so angry with him about that. I just, I don't know. I really got to be in my bonnet about him. Uh, and there, he wasn't connected with any sort of feral people, there, but there were a lot of those people around. So you can see on my mind mm-hmm. them together. Mm-hmm. But I think that notion of a grudge and how one sort of situation can ripple out, not just in dream mental space, but in time, mm-hmm. in time across years. I think that would be a really interesting thing to pick up on for, for next episode, because that is a way of, of define. that's another kind of attention span. And it ties into your idea of hate span. Grudge span is, well, how long are you going to hold a grudge for? You know, can't you forgive and forget? How long and, you got? <laughs> You know, and I saw a book today. I was I was uh, looking, I was shopping for more art supplies, and uh, it's this big, you know, Hobby Lobby. It's big, so they sell everything, and they sell they have books and uh, a certain kind of book. And one of the titles that I remember was "How to uh, 
forgive what you can't forget. Mm. You know? So all of these things zoom around. But thank you for listening to that because, you know, the, the hard part, of course, oftentimes with recounting dreams is the, the real interior psychology of it is not in the plot line. It's just in the sheer intensity of the details. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. vividness of that reality. Mm-hmm. And you think, God, really? Am I there? And and maybe I'm there all the time and I just don't right. know it. That's why you'll have a dream and you'll wake up in the middle of the night, you'll write something down. And then you wake up the next morning and you look at your notebook and you just wrote the words pizza teeth. Yeah. And you think, what? In the, what? But it was important at the, because. <laughs> yeah. The pe- the, well. The and it is important in a lost explorer sense because these are the ways we find little clues yeah. to ourselves, little secret clues, the deep, you know, something in ourselves left a little message on a notice board that we could find about ourselves because mm-hmm. we're amnesiacs lost in a big dream. And every once in a while we get a clue and we think, well, who left us that? Oh, mm-hmm. it was us. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> it was that other, it was one of our other, yeah. you know, manifestations yeah it was the the evil cooper left us something yeah, but, yeah. Uh, God, right. it's a good one all right everybody thanks for tuning in and we will pick this conversation up next week yeah thanks for listening everyone take care we'll be back